That was the opening music to Warner Brothers, The Maltese Falcon, released on October 3rd of 1941. And I'm Matt Johnson, coming to you from sunny Seattle. And I'm Bob Johnson, coming to you from warm and sunny Los Angeles, where today I am outside on the patio, so there may be a little background noise, but I'll uh, hopefully not have much of that. Well, why don't we just jump right in? Uh, you know, okay, f- let's go for it. When I, when I heard the opening music to the movie, and I saw that title crawl, I felt like I was going to be watching an Indiana Jones adventure movie. It had that feel to it. <laughs> you suppose that maybe where the idea came from for Indiana Jones at the beginning? Yeah, maybe. The actually the whole movie feels like it's like an interlude between maybe two Indiana Jones movies. It's kind of like there could be one before this where they're looking for the Falcon off in the Mid East or Russia or wherever they're at. And then there could be one after this where they go back to look for it again. I hadn't thought of that. That'd be great. They, never, they, the never direct- made a, they never made a sequel to this, did they? No, they never did. Maybe that's good, because there were two movies before it. Neither one did very well. One in 1931, The Maltese Falcon, and one in 1936, Satan Met a Lady. I love that title. <laughs> I have, I've seen the original Maltese Falcon. I have not seen the Satan Met a Lady. Are those based on the good. same the same story? They are. Yeah, they are. The Satan Met a Lady is a light comedy. Oh, okay. <laughs> or at least that's what I read, since I haven't seen it. Uh, I had a couple of things on uh, John Huston, who's such a great director. Uh, the next film we do is The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, one of his, and then we're going to do uh, one later. But his dad, Walter Huston, was an excellent actor and director, and then his daughter is also a very uh, well-known act- actress, and I think she won an Academy Award. And so this it, it movie, runs of in course, the family. did really well. It runs in the family, yeah. This movie did very well, obviously, at the uh, at the box office. And what can we say about Humphrey Bogart, my favorite among favorite actors? Yeah, yeah you, even, you even had a cardboard cutout of Humphrey Bogart in your office for a long time. I know, I did. I wonder what uh, ever happened to that. I believe I have it stored in the garage oh. <laughs> in case I have space sometimes. I either have it stored there or I gave it away when I moved from Seattle. Well, if you still have it, which... next time we do the podcast, you should set it up behind you so I can I can watch it and it'll be like he's looking over your shoulder. <laughs> it's a great one. I've got lots of – I know I have lots of pictures of him. Ben and Jen gave me a, a, an original poster from one of the movie studios of him. It's a huge thing. That's also in storage because there wasn't enough wall space for all my Humphrey Bogart paraphernalia. So you're a fan. Uh, you're a, you're a big fan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, I am. I have to confess, he is my favorite. But I also am right up there: Gregory Peck, John Wayne, Sidney Poitier, and I will con- I will stop at that. <laughs> wasn't he voted the Wasn't done. he voted the the best actor of all time at some point? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. I I, uh, I was I was surprised a little bit because there've been so many, but uh, I will not argue against that decision. Yeah, he's um, definitely uh, uh, one of my favorites as well. On this movie, Roger Ebert said the uh, the version that we uh, are reviewing today 
was one of the greatest films ever made. It had three Academy Award nominations, Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, Sidney Greenstreet, and Best Adapted Screenplay. But it didn't win any. Didn't win any at all. That's kind of amazing to me. And it's the 20, it's rated by the American Film Institute as the 23rd best movie ever made. So it has different levels, but it's in the top 100 no matter how you look at it. I remember watching this when I was a lot younger. I was probably 10 or 11 or 12. And honestly, I have no idea what was going on pretty much through the whole movie at that time. <laughs> I'm the same way. I watched it when I was about that age, and <clears throat> I just I couldn't follow it. But now, imagine you know, what be, imagine what it'd have been like if you'd watched The Big Sleep when you were twelve. Oh, forget it. That's even more confused than this. But now, it you know, yeah. after watching it several times, uh, it makes perfect sense. But part of the problem of trying to follow the story is that um, the character that Mary Astor plays, uh, Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Is, is pretty much lying throughout the entire movie. I don't know if she ever tells the truth. I know. Even at the end. And and uh, I was reading that she's sort of the prototype for the femme fatale, and, and this a lot of people consider this the first film noir movie. I know. I, I would agree with that, I think. Although High Sierra has a little bit of that from the late 30s, but this is really right in the, right in the uh, wheelhouse of film noir. I love I love Elijah Cook Jr. who plays Wilmer Cook. He was in the movies for sixty years, and when he wasn't making movies, he lived in Bishop, California, about I don't know two three hours from Los Angeles. Spent his time tying flies and fly fishing. So he he, he did his best. He loved his hobby, and he loved making these movies where he was always kind of the uh, bad guy oddball. Well, he played the the gunman or henchman for Mister Gutman, right? Yes, he did, yeah. He was pretty inept compared to uh, Sam Spade. <laughs> no, no kidding. <laughs> he kept uh, losing his guns. Dashiell Hammond said that Sam Spade was, he wrote Sam Spade to be the ultimate and best detective ever. No one could defeat him. Well, I like that he never uh, fell for Bridget O'Shaughnessy's lies. You know, he, he was, <laughs> he kept saying things like, You, uh... You aren't exactly the sort of a person you pretend to be, are you? I, I, I'm not sure I know exactly what you mean. The schoolgirl manner, you know, blushing, stammering, and all that. I haven't lived a good life. I've been bad. Worse than you could know. Yeah, well, that's good, because if you actually were as innocent as you pretend to be, we'd never get anywhere. You know, because she kept saying things that were just kind of outlandish, and he wouldn't fall for it. Well, before we uh, wrap up today's review, you should mention your theory of what what uh, Sam Spade did with the uh, Falcon. I will, when we I get had, to the end. I'd never thought of that. Yeah, I'd never thought of that. I love it. Well, the music fits well for the story and the drama. That was one of my takeaways. And I love the, uh, the black and white photography and the shadows and the lighting, all of that, and the dialogue. I just love the dialogue. Back and forth between Sydney Green Street and everybody. Oh, Amazing. the dialogue was great, and it was really fast too. The dialogue sort of replaces today's action in movies. Yeah, because there's not a lot of action in the movie. Uh, there's a few no. scenes. Uh, one of my favorites 
is when Joe Cairo comes into Sam Spade's office and tries to hold him up, and Sam Spade <laughs> <laughs> pretty much knocks him out uh, with one punch. Uh, but then uh, Joe Cairo wakes up and tries to hold him up again, and Sam Spade just laughs and goes, "Well, I won't stand in your way <laughs> if you if you got if you really want to search my office, go ahead." Peter Peter Laurie was so good <clears throat> as Joel Cairo. I read where the Joel Cairo character was intended to be a gay person, but they couldn't really say much about that because of the production code in effect for movies. So they did whatever they could to kind of push the envelope. Well, like he's introduced uh, Sam Spade's secretary brings uh, Joe Cairo's card into Sam and Sam looks at it and smells it. And she says, yep, gardenias. Because I guess it must have had perfume on it or something. <laughs> yeah, or maybe his aftershave. Or his aftershave, maybe, yeah. You know, when I think about the movie, every character is is kind of unique. Like Sidney's Green Street, he like weighed 350 pounds. This was his first movie. He had never made a movie before this. He was outstanding. Oh, he did and great. Then, of course, of course uh, Peter Laurie and, and Marriott, well, everybody. It was just... There wasn't a bad uh, actor or script or story in the whole movie. I, I like Jerome Cohen. He was he was Spade's partner at the beginning, but he, he met an untimely death. He, uh, in his later movie career, moved on to become Dagwood Bumstead's boss in the old Dagwood uh, comic strip movie uh, serials. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen those or not, but he was the he was the bumbling boss of. Dagwood. I'm not sure that was a step up from this, but at least he didn't get shot. Well, and he still wor- he was still working. He was still working. Yeah, still working. Well, let's, maybe you want to talk about some of our favorite scenes. I t- I mentioned one of mine, which was when we meet Joe Cairo. Uh, there's so many. I liked it when uh, after Miles Archer gets murdered. It, it's not. It seems like it's about two hours later, and Sam Spade is having the signs on the office changed to spade and getting rid of archer like, boy he couldn't wait yeah he didn't like his Get partner very thing. much i don't think and he it, it became no. clear that his uh he and and his partner's wife were having an affair as well hello Ivor. Take care of everything? I think so. Sam, did you kill him? Who put that bright idea in your head? Well, I thought you said if it wasn't for Miles, you'd... Yeah, that you know, it seemed to me that part of Archer's wife, when they made the movie before it was edited and put into final version, I think she had a bigger role that somehow didn't make it to the final cut. Because she's very prevalent in the first part of the movie, and then you don't see her again. Yeah, she just disappears from the second half. Disappears. I think the only reason to have her in the movie, based on the way that it ended up, was to really show that, number one, Sam was kind of a ladies' man, and number two, that he was having an affair with his partner's wife, (laughs) which isn't a very nice thing to do. Uh, No, even in today's... (laughs) <laughs> society it's not seen as a plus 
The other thing I liked about the early part of the movie, when Spade and Archer were having their office banter about the uh, Mary Astor character, and really their decision was based on they, they needed the money. You're right enough. They have brothers in her bag. What do you think of her? Oh, she's sweet. <laughs> Maybe you saw her first, Sam, but I spoke first. You got brains. Yes, you have. And then later, Sam Spade says that... That story I told you yesterday was just a story. Oh, that. Well, we, we didn't exactly believe your story, Miss... Uh, what is your name? Wonderly or LeBlanc? It's really O'Shaughnessy. Bridget O'Shaughnessy. We didn't exactly believe your story, Miss O'Shaughnessy. We believed you $200. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Which is probably okay, because she never told the truth the whole movie. No, she didn't. Double dealing is an understatement for her. Well, actually, all three of those crooks, Green Street, Lori, and uh, Mary Astor, I didn't trust any of them. No way. Uh, and then I like the scene where they're all in Sam's apartment, and they're talking about a plan to try to get the the Falcon. And Bridget reaches out and slaps Joe Kyra right on the face. And it, it looked like he was really surprised by like that by that. Almost like yeah. it wasn't planned. I, I don't think it was. And usually sometimes you can tell in movies when they've pulled a punch and they're not really hitting somebody. But I think she really whacked him one. I think she did too. And then uh, Sam says to Joe, You mean the one you couldn't get to count You're slapped, you'll take it and like it. <laughs> I, love that, I love that line. I, it, 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 and it wouldn't surprise me if John Huston said after that slap scene, let's do that again. I don't think I got it on film. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Lorre's like, uh, I don't think so. I don't, I'm going back to Europe. Thank you. On the next boat. Um, you know, the, the scene kind of, I moved ahead, you know, where they had that long scene in the apartment, in his apartment. I don't think a scene like that would be made today. It goes on for many minutes. They're all sitting around, and the dialogue is... They're, uh, she's making coffee, and they're deciding whether they want to turn uh, uh, Wilmer Cook over to the police as the fall guy. That that scene, I love that scene, but I, I can't imagine that taking place in a movie today. Yeah, not quite it's like that, so I don't think. Out. Yeah, it does. It's, and I know that there's a scene in the movie that's... An unedited, an uncut, continuous scene of of something like seven or eight minutes, and I, that might be the scene that you're talking about. I I think it is. Yeah, I I think it is. The only thing I could say about that for today would be, it could be. I would I would not be surprised to see that on a masterpiece theater, on PBS. But to go to a movie theater and see that eight minute uncut version, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't. Well, there's a, see that you know, the, the thing about the movie to me is that there's a lot of talking. There's a lot, of, and there aren't that many different sets. You know, there there's his uh, his office, his apartment, uh, like the hotel lobby. There's a few scenes outdoors. You know, that are supposed to be outdoors. Uh, there's the Mr. Gutman's hotel room, and there's uh, Bridget O'Shaughnessy's hotel room. But you know, they're they're, they're if you weren't paying attention, they all kind of blend together a little bit. It's almost like they uh, did it as a stage play. It doesn't, it doesn't 
come out like a stage play, but they had very few scenes like you'd see on a Broadway theater production. I, I'm, I'm back now. I'm going backward in the movie. Um, I loved it when the two police detectives show up at Spade's place, and uh, he says to them, "Oh, hello, Tom. Hello, Lieutenant. Come in." Sit down. Sit down. Drink. Did you uh, break the news to Miles' wife, Sam? Uh-huh. How'd she take it? I don't know anything about women. Since when? What kind of a gun do you carry? None. I don't like them. Of course, there are some at the office. You don't happen to have one here. You sure about that? Look around. Turn the dump upside down if you want to. I won't squawk if you got a search warrant. He just, he <laughs> didn't, he didn't, uh, I, I don't think he was a big friend of the police, especially that Barton McLean detective. Yeah, because uh, uh, at one point, that guy punches him right in the face. <laughs> well, you had mentioned that you like that scene where Sam goes in to talk to the district attorney. Oh, I love that scene, yeah. <laughs> he just, the dialogue there is really snappy. Who killed Thursday? I don't know. Perhaps you don't, but you could make an excellent guess. My guess might be excellent, or it might be crummy, but Mrs. Spade didn't raise any children dippy enough to make guesses in front of a district attorney and an assistant district attorney and a stenographer. Why shouldn't you if you've nothing to conceal? Everybody has something to conceal. I'm a sworn officer of the law 24 hours a day, and neither formality nor informality justifies you withholding evidence of crime from me, except, of course, on constitutional grounds. Now, both you and the police have as much as accused me of being mixed up in the other night's murders. Well, I've had trouble with both of you before. And as far as I can see, my best chance of clearing myself of the trouble you're trying to make for me is by bringing in the murderers all tied up. And the only chance I've got of catching them and tying them up and bringing them in is by staying as far away as possible from you and the police because you'd only gum up the works. You getting this all right, son, or am I going too fast for you? No, sir. I'm getting it all right. Good work. That's a great scene. This, the, the, the plot in this uh, is, is pretty reminiscent for me of... Uh, Another Humphrey Bogart movie, The Big Sleep from 1945 and 1946. They made two versions of it. Different director and a whole different cast, but there's just something about the way that the movie is made with the lighting, the film, the, the, uh, the cinematography that, that it's almost like the same crew was making it behind the scenes. And maybe they were because that's not, that's only four or five years in between the two. Was that a, also a Warner Brothers movie? That was, yeah, that was, he, I think Humphrey Bogart did nothing but Warner, well, not, shouldn't say nothing, he did a few others, but he was a, he had a contract with Warner Brothers, I think, through the late 1940s, so he made, like, made that box set of Humphrey Bogart movies, there's 24 of them, all Warner Brothers, and I don't think that's all of them, he made some earlier ones where he was the second or third actor in the movie. Oh, one thing that I wanted to mention, I don't want to forget, is uh, I was thinking about this movie compared to Double Indemnity. And, yes. You know, in that movie, we've got that same kind of femme fatale uh, character that we have in this movie, but the role of the lead sort of protagonist uh, is totally different because in this one, Sam Spade is a, you know, take-no-prisoners, take-no-crap kind of detective, hard-boiled detective. Uh, but in uh, uh, Double Indemnity... What was the actor's name? That Fred McMurray. He uh, was kind of clueless through most of the movie, <laughs> and ended up I dying know. at the end, I think, or 
possibly. We'll, we'll never know, but it sure looked like he was checking out there at the end. There were a lot of these movies in the 40s. I love the film noir. I mean, I, I could watch every film noir movie ever made 10 times each. I never get tired of it. I think sometimes I even make myself go batty watching them. I, I said to a group uh, when I was out at the volunteer orientation at the fund that I feel sometimes like I'm trapped in the 1940s when it comes to movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wanted to uh, come back to another favorite scene. And this this one I love is uh, about 58 minutes into the movie when Sam Spade is talking to Mr. Gutman and Mr. Gutman's finally going to tell Sam about the bird, about the black bird. Because apparently nobody knows the real story except for him. And then he goes into this about two-minute description, uh, exposition of the history of the Maltese falcon. I owe you an apology, sir. Never mind that. Let's talk about the black bird. All right, sir. Let's. Let's. This is going to be the most astounding thing you've ever heard of, sir. And I say this knowing that a man of your caliber and your profession must have known some astounding things in his time. What do you know, sir, about the Order of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, later known as the Knights of Rhodes and other things? Crusaders or something, weren't they? Very good. Sit down. In 1539, these crusading knights persuaded Emperor Charles V to give them the island of Malta. He made but one condition they pay him each year the tribute of a falcon in acknowledgement that Malta was still under Spain. You follow me? Uh-huh. Have you any conception of the extreme, the immeasurable wealth of the order of that time? I imagine they were pretty well fixed. Pretty well is putting it mildly. They were rolling in wealth, sir. For years they'd taken from the east. Nobody knows what spoils of gems, precious metals, silks, ivory, sir. We all know the holy wars to them were largely a matter of loot. The knights were profoundly grateful to the Emperor Charles for his generosity toward them. They hit upon the happy thought of sending him for his first year's tribute, not an insignificant live bird, but a glorious golden falcon, crusted from head to foot with the finest jewels in their covers. Well, sir, what do you think of that? And I, I love that. It was, again, it was like a setup for an Indiana Jones movie. Yeah. He did everything but drool. <laughs> when he was talking about that. And hadn't they been on the search for this for like a dozen years or something like that? It was a long time. It was a long time. And here, here this plays into my theory that I'm going to talk about at the end. But when I watched it again this morning, I, I'm not 100% convinced that he even knows exactly what the bird looks like. I think he has a fairly good idea what it looks like. But I, I'm not 100% sure that he's actually seen it. Even though he oh, kind of says that, you know, we yeah. found it at this Russian's house. But but really, I think it was some henchman that he had hired that had alerted him to it. But, I bet uh, you're right. Over, over the years, it had become sort of a, uh, what do they call it, an urban legend about what it looked like and what, was, what it was made of and all of that. You're probably right, because uh, nobody that was mentioned in the movie other than him had ever seen it. So we have to just take his word for it that he's seen it. So I, I think that's a little bit up for debate. I, w I, w I was just going to say, remember years ago, probably 20 years ago, I was in Chicago, and I went to the Golden Age of Radio store in North Chicago, and I bought a replica of the Maltese Falcon. And I brought it home, and I had it in my office for a long time. 
I don't know where that is. It's been lost to time. But it looked just like the one in the movie. It wasn't expensive. Oh, you man, remember I wish we still had that. I'd put it in my office. Or you could set it up every time we do a podcast recording behind <laughs> your head. I, I think you could have, on one side, you could have Humphrey Bogart and his cardboard cutout. And then on the other side, the Maltese Falcon. And they could just be watching over you in your office. Well, and then behind me, I could have the, the picture that Fred gave me of Humphrey Bogart with Lauren Bacall and Marilyn Monroe. Oh, where he's looking down uh, Marilyn Monroe's yeah. uh, dress? Yeah, that was yeah. classy. Yeah, that was that was one of his finer moments. Oh, God. Uh, but I don't know what happened to the to the statue. I'm sure I could find another one. But Well, uh, is, is this a good point in the uh, review where you talk about your your uh, theory of the yeah, Falcon? Yeah, so, you know, basically what ends up happening is that uh, Gutman and O'Shaughnessy and Cairo and Spade all end up in a room together. And also the, the henchman guy end up in, a, in uh, I think it might be Sam's apartment, but I'm not 100% sure. And anyway, uh, they think that they found, th Sam thinks that he's found the Falcon because it came in on a boat from uh, Asia uh, the boat caught fire, which I think was probably set. That was probably a, a arson. And the captain of the boat brings the the bird, all wrapped up in like packaging, to Sam Spade's office. And then I think he dies right there in his office. The captain yeah, he delivers. Of the boat. He de it was John Houston's dad, Walter Houston. He brings it in, hands it over, and then dies. Yeah. Okay. That was uh, that was his dad. Okay. I thought I thought so. And then. Sam gives it to his secretary and says, hold on to this, and when I call you, I want you to bring it to me. So I think we cut forward about 12 hours or so, or it's like it's kind of like the next day, and Sam's called everybody together, and they're, he's going to hand over the Falcon and get his money. Uh, and so he, he brings up his secretary, and she brings it over to the, the gathering, and... Mr. Gutman's so excited, and he can't believe that he's finally got his hands on it. He unwraps it, still thinks that he's got it, and then starts chipping away at it, because as we found out earlier, the falcon had been covered up in enamel. So he thinks that if he can chip away at the enamel, he'll see the jewels underneath. But unfortunately for him, it's just an iron statuette underneath the enamel. Or maybe the whole thing was just iron, I'm not sure. But he doesn't. He, he kind of takes it in stride a little bit, and in the end, is like, well, I guess we just have to go back and look for it again. But there's a whole scene in there where Sam is like trying to get uh, Wilmer Cook set up as sort of the fall guy. Yes. And then, yes. but he ends up escaping because he can see that even though he's been with Mister Gutman for a long time, that Mister Gutman's going to sell him up the river just so that he can get the. The Falcon. <laughs> and then Sam turns on uh, uh, Bridget O'Shaughnessy and basically sets her up as the fall person as well. And she can't believe it, but he actually follows through with it and turns her into the police. And then tells the police where they can find uh, uh, Wilmer Cook, who ended up killing the guy at the beginning of the movie that we never see. I forget what his name was. Thursby. Joe, Joe Thursby. Yeah, Thursby. He was the one who Thursby. killed Thursby at the beginning. But anyway, here we get to my, my theory here is that between the time that the captain brought the Falcon to Sam Spade's office and when the next day when the secretary brought the Falcon to the, the meeting, uh, 
that Sam actually does have the the real Falcon and that he had switched it out for a fake in between that time period somehow and that he's got the real one back in his office. I love that because now he's worth $10 million in 1941 dollar values. And, I love that. And he's got the bad guys off his tail because they're headed back to the Mideast to look for it again. Well, and I, I think he may have even turned in the other bad guys. I think he may have said where they could find Green Street, uh, oh, Joel Cairo. Right. I, I think he, so I think he put them all in a bag, got them out of the way, turned her in, and kept the Falcon. I love that. That's my theory. And I don't know. I, I did a little research on how quickly you could make an iron statue, and, and it kind of falls apart a little bit because it takes quite a number of hours to actually make one. But if nobody's actually ever seen it, including Mr. Gutman, it doesn't really matter. He could just get. Uh, no. He could just say, go find something that looks like a, a Falcon and bring it to the meeting. <laughs> you know? Yeah. He went. He went to the Golden Age of Radio shop in San Francisco and bought a fake. No, you're right. But you, the other thing is, we don't know the time sequence in the story. It may have been a few more days than it's presented to be. It's true. That's true. It could have been. So it have might not have been the next time. day. It could have been a couple of days later, which then would give him time to make a replica. And I think Sam had enough connections in San Francisco that he could have found somebody that might have put it together. Say Sam said, well, if you put this together, when we're all done, I'll give you $10,000. I have to believe somebody could have made it quickly. I think so, too. So, I know I would have. What I love about the movie, though, is it doesn't really say one way or another. And I, I like movies I that never... leave it open, open-ended, and you can use your imagination to fill in the blanks. I love that. Well, what I really enjoyed about it is uh, I've watched this movie at least eight, ten times. I never thought of that. <laughs> Well, there you go, something new. Something new. And I I also enjoyed uh, Sidney Greenstreet when he was peeling away at that statue. I thought he was going to have a heart attack when he realized it wasn't the real thing. And then he calmed down, like you say. He recovered quickly. It was like, well, I've been looking for it for 10 years or however long. I guess I'll just keep looking. But yeah, his initial reaction was he was pissed. (laughs) And panicked. And panicked, yeah because they'd spent almost all their money. They had to get some of the money back from Sam, which he was willing to do, because as you as your theory goes, he had the statue stashed away in the <laughs> in a locker somewhere, and he didn't care. What's $9,000 to him? He, he probably cashed in, bought a, a cruiser boat, and sailed off to the Caribbean somewhere. <laughs> Never to be seen again. <clears throat> Without any hesitation at all, <clears throat> I give this a 10 out of 10 on, my, on our rating scale. I don't have any... Uh, flaws in this movie at all. Yeah, I, I would I would agree. I, I would give it a ten. But again, you should you should go read the ratings on IMDB because it, it's kind of the same thing that happened with Brief Encounter, where you get these people that love the movie and give it the highest rating, and then you've got other people that say, I don't get it. I don't see what all the hype is about. All they're doing is talking the whole time. It's boring. <laughs> wow. They must, they must be a different aficionado of film noir. So I think it takes a certain person to really appreciate some of these movies, and I think if, it's, if, if this oh, is yeah. the kind of movie that you like, you're, you're really going to love this one. It's a detective movie. It's got a little bit of adventure. It's uh, film noir. It's great acting, great cinematography. Lots of double dealing, double crossing. Yeah, snappy dialogue. Well, I know of a couple people that uh, love movies from the 1940s, 
but they love musicals because there were so many musicals made. And they don't care much for the uh, film noir type movies. So it, it really is a personal choice. I guess that's no different than today when I know for myself I love some of the movies that come out and others I I don't enjoy at all. So, But I, I, I'll have to read some of that. Yeah, go read some of the reviews. A couple other comments before we wrap up. Uh, Jade and my 11-year-old, or now 12-year-old son, came into my uh, bedroom while I was watching this, and it had just started. And he laid down just to kind of hang out with me. And I thought, well, he'll probably won't stay for very much of this. Uh, he'll get bored. But actually, he kind of got into it and ended up watching the whole thing with me. Oh, wow. We should have had him as a guest reviewer <laughs> yeah if he wasn't at school <laughs> <laughs> well there is that oh and then there and then the uh way. shelby my 13 year old daughter said to me that hey someday the movies that i'm watching now are going to be classic movies and i said yeah you know like no 50 kidding. years from now why not yeah no kidding well that like the ones that i grew up with in the 50s 60s and 70s are classics and yours are coming along very soon Oh, for sure. Some of the movies yeah. from the late 70s and 80s. Yeah. So I, I, I uh, turned on the TV last night after we got unpacked and settled, and To Sir With Love was on Turner Classic Movies at 7 o'clock here. I think it was 7. And it had a whole evening of Sidney Poitier movies. Because I think that partly was because of Martin Luther King Day. But I, then I said to Nancy, I said, maybe Turner Classic Movies is listening to our reviews and they're going to have all of the movies on that we reviewed. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Their programmer <laughs> yeah, right. is uh, a big fan of our show. <laughs> it, it wouldn't be the other way around, would it? No. Where we're, where we're following them. Oh, well, I don't think so. It could be just coincidence. No. I think it is. I, in fact, I'm absolutely sure it is. Well, anyway, we should wrap it up. Uh, so you gave it a 10, and I gave it a 10. So what's up next on our Humphrey Bogart Year-long movie review. Next, I'm kidding. Uh, well, three. We're going to do three of them three, anyway. Do, not all 24. Yeah, no, no, just two more. Uh, we're going to do The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which another I started favorite. watching. and it has. It's another kind of movie that feels like it could be an adventure movie with uh, Harrison Ford. I think Harrison Ford yep. reminds me a lot of Humphrey Bogart. It really good. This one particularly so because it's outdoors a lot. There's a lot more outdoor action. Yeah. And you haven't gotten to it in the film yet, but... When you do, you're going to enjoy the haircut he gets when he gets to Mexico or gets into town. You're going to love that. No, I, I did. I one. did see that part. I love that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that that barber like was something else. <laughs> and he looked like he put it pens oil on his head. Uh, no, you're, that's a great movie. That's coming up next episode. Uh, thanks everybody for listening, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net or in iTunes, just search for classic movie reviews. And I noticed that we're the top hit now when you uh, do that search, so you should be able to find us pretty easily. And until next episode, I'm Matt Johnson, coming to you from sunny Seattle. And Bob Johnson here in Los Angeles, wishing you good movie watching. <laughs>